Welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm the your crappy host, Jane. Jane, why are you so <laughs> crappy? Uh, I'm quite sick at the minute. Oh. I've got food poisoning, I think. You've had food poisoning for like a month now. <laughs> you ate like one bad chicken tender and it ruined your whole year. Yeah, it's it's been rough. It's, it's contributed to me actually having the worst podcasting setup in history at the minute. Oh? So I'm like jammed into a corner of my room in, on like a folding chair. Uh-huh. So if I need to run to the bathroom, it's going to be an ordeal. Oh, God. Uh, and if I do, I'll have to be very careful not to knock over my microphone, uh-huh. which is on a pile consisting of there's a book at the bottom and then the middle piece is like a novelty Lego yellow like minifigure head, but like a big one. Oh god. Like the size of an actual person's head. Right. And then on top there's another book. So it's kind of precarious. Why did you set it up in the most precarious way possible? Uh because if I put the Lego head on the top, the um the legs of the snowball's microphone stand wouldn't have anything to sit on. I see. So it needs to have the book for the surface area to actually stay there. I see. But yeah, this this is a risky operation I'm running. People always say like they should make you know the the board game operation, where you. Oh yeah. Yeah, people are always saying like they should do that in real life too. This is you inventing doing that in real life. Yeah, and there's even a health hazard risk if I get it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it all works out super great, folks. As you can tell. We're your favorite podcast about Percy Jackson, currently The Bow of the Labyrinth, and today we got some chapters for you. We do indeed have some chapters. Yeah, so we went from chapter 8 to chapter 10 this week. Should I just jump straight into summaries? Yeah, let's hear about those chapters. Chapter 8, we visit the Demon Dude Ranch. After sealing the exit from Alcatraz, Briares restates that he can't help the group further explains that the other 200 handed ones, his brothers, have been totally forgotten and faded completely from existence, the same way that Medusa's sisters and Helios have. Tyson is distraught at hearing this, but Briares is unswayed by his pleas and leaves the group, heading off into the labyrinth on his own. Despondent, the group sets up camp for the night, and Percy and Annabeth talk about her worries about leading the quest. Some reminiscing about their past exploits briefly cheers her up, but it's soon replaced by worry, when Percy brings out the final line of the prophecy again, as well as the choice that Janice mentioned. In the awkward silence, Percy realises that his visions of Nico D'Angelo must have been coming from within the labyrinth, and it's likely that he escaped camp the previous year through the entrance in Zeus's fist. Percy then goes to bed and has a dream that's basically a straight retelling of the classic story of Icarus, where he and Daedalus escape captivity at the hands of Minos and wax wings, and Icarus's fail when he flies too close to the sun and he falls into the sea and drowns. The next morning, the gang move on and find a pool of Pepsi along with a discarded burger wrapper, the ingredients Nico needs for a necromantic ritual. Shortly after finding this, they come up under a cattle grid, and Percy insists on surfacing and checking out the area in case Nico is here. They do so and emerge onto a patch of sunny farmland in Texas, before being confronted by Eurytion and Orthus, 
a demigod and duo dog respectively, Yurishin warns the gang to get back into the labyrinth, telling them that they don't want his boss to find out about them, but he lets slip that another demigod has been through recently, and Annabeth insists that they won't leave until they can check if it was Nico. Yurishin leads them to the farmhouse where they meet Geryon, the owner of the farm and a man with one head, two arms, two legs, and three torsos. While everyone is reeling from how weird that is, Nico emerges from the house and draws his Stygian blade on Percy, before Geryon reminds him that fighting is banned on the farm. Instead, he takes them on a tour, showing off various animal rights abuses and letting slip that he's supplying food and magical creatures to Kronos' war effort. He also reveals that he's planning to keep Nico and sell him to Kronos, but he won't do the same to Percy's group because a mysterious benefactor has paid for their safe passage. Percy doesn't accept this, however, and bets his freedom and that of his friends against the chance to free Nico. If he can clean the stables that Geryon keeps his horses in by sundown, then they can all go free. If not, Geryon sells them all to Kronos. Chapter 9. I Scoop Poop The situation is bleak for Percy, unfortunately. The poo is literally stacked metres high in some places, and while he can talk to the horses in the stables, they're a freaky, flesh-eating variety that seem more interested in tearing him limb from limb than in helping him. Worse, when he tries to go to a nearby river to try and use that to flood the stables in the same way that Heracles did, a naiad intercepts him and tells him that she's not letting someone pull that shit again, so to speak. However, the naiad takes pity on Percy and shows him ancient sea fossils hidden under the soil, which Percy then realises he can use to produce spouts of salt water. By throwing the fossils in from outside and then turning them into the water, Percy can wash away the crap without having to get too close to the flesh-eating horses and so he's able to clean the stables in short order. However, when he returns to Geryon's house, he finds that, since he didn't swear a binding oath, Geryon is just going to sell them to Kronos anyway. A fight ensues, and Percy struggles to kill Geryon, as he has three torsos worth of redundant organs. Eventually, he resorts to firing an arrow through his side, skewering all three of his hearts at once. While the gang are safer now, as Eurition isn't paid enough to care if they escape, a confrontation quickly breaks out between Percy and Nico. Percy realises that the person sending him Iris messages has been Bianca, and, desperate to prove him wrong, Nico agrees to try and summon her. Chapter 10. We play the game show of death. The summoning process hits a snag almost immediately when Minos is manifested instead of Bianca, and immediately starts tipping poison into Nico's ear about trusting Percy, Annabeth, Grover, and Tyson, threatening to drive them mad as he did to Chris Rodriguez. He also warns them that Daedalus won't want to help them, as he's old, bitter, twisted by guilt over a murder, and doesn't like half-bloods. Before he can elaborate, Nico tells him to shove off so they can get Bianca instead. This works, and she appears before them, which reawakens a lot of complicated feelings in Percy about her death. She explains that she's never responded to Nico's summons before now because she was hoping he would give up on his quest to resurrect her. She warns him that the fatal flaw of Hades' children is holding grudges, and that he needs to drop the one he has against Percy. Before disappearing, she tells Nico that if she loves him, he'll give up on his quest to resurrect her. The gang decide to stay the night in the farmhouse, which Eurition allows as Geryon won't reform for some time, so he's unlikely to get in trouble. Grover and Percy crash on the couches, and Percy once again dreams about Luke, this time on top of Mount Orthus, assembling the team that will head into the labyrinth and invade Camp Halfblood. We see that the Campe from Alcatraz is out for revenge, and Luke agrees to let her join the attack although he expresses regret about recruiting her in the first place due to her raw power. He also mentions to Kelly the Empusa that they need to secure passage through an arena of some sort, before Kelly once again boots Percy out of the dream. 
Percy is catapulted into a separate dream, another flashback from Daedalus's life. In this one, he's overcome with jealousy over the talents of his young nephew, Perdix, and causes him to fall from a cliff and die, before being cursed by Athena for his terrible crime. Percy wakes and finds that Grover is up too. They talk about Grover's worries about finding Pan, especially since the week-long deadline that the council gave him has already passed. If Grover comes back empty-handed, he's screwed. He tells Percy that he doesn't think he can face going back if that happens. The next morning, the gang prepare to leave, while Nico stays at the ranch to figure some stuff out. Eurytion tells them that their best shot at finding Daedalus is, as a few others have told them, finding Hephaestus, and gives them a medallion which will lead them to his forge. They follow the medallion until they reach a room containing a sphinx. They decide to let Annabeth confront it, but instead of asking her a riddle, the sphinx attempts to have Annabeth fill out a standardised test form, which simply asks her for random facts. Declaring it an insult to her intelligence, Annabeth demands a real riddle, and the Sphinx replies by attacking her. In the ensuing fight, Annabeth smashes the Sphinx's grading machine, which unlocks the exit and allows the gang to escape further into the labyrinth. So, what do you think of these chapters? These chapters are doing almost everything right. Absolutely. The way that, like, okay, there's a lot, there's a lot here. Oh, damn, a lot of stuff happened. A lot of stuff happens, there's so much to talk about, I... What what stands out to you the most about these chapters? Honestly, the Sphinx thing from the end. Really? Because I feel like on a couple of occasions, when especially when we're at the start of the book and we're at a point where Percy is at school, we've kind of tried to suss out, you know, what's, what's Rick's big thesis statement about education here? Right. He's clearly trying to do a bit of a social commentary. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's kind of unambiguous um, here which seems to be that Rick Ryden believes that the appropriate response to standardized testing is to physically attack the people who are giving out the tests. You know what? Can't say I blame him. Yeah, no, more power to him. Yeah. I <laughs> That wasn't that wasn't what I had that wasn't something that I had necessarily drawn, but I think you're completely right. I think this is true. <laughs> I think this exactly reflects Rick Riordan's morals and values and you can Take that to the bank. <laughs> Listen, everything in the book is completely literal. There is no room for figurative language or subtext or anything. No. The Sphinx fight was cool. That was really good. I I, yeah. I I think my favorite part of it was that Grover got like the final hit. Like he got to trap the Sphinx using like all the discarded number two pencils and like returning them to their wild roots as trees. That was cool. Yeah, and it, it follows like the thread that we got in the um, Demon Dude Ranch parts of these chapters, which is him being extremely pissed off about the treatment of nature. Yeah, we, we've been getting that since the Lightning Thief, the back of that old uh, animal carrying mm-hmm. truck. Can I? Can I say? Sure, this is a free speech zone. Oh, thank you, Jane. Do you know what a dude ranch is? Uh, Dude Ranch sounds like some kind of uh, dirty innuendo, but I couldn't say what a Dude Ranch is. Oh god, you're right. Uh, Okay, (laughs) so this, a Dude Ranch, this is not what a Dude Ranch is. A Dude Ranch is like, like, you you get some, like, city slickers, and they pay, they pay, you know, for, like, a resort stay at, like, a, you know, a ranch or whatever, where they uh-huh. get to ride the horses and all that kind of stuff. Right, I see. That's what a this is not a I would not stay here. No, it's covered in poo. 
it's 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 horrific it's disgusting i think that what's his fucking gary and might be the like the most despicable character we've ever met yeah no i can see that he's like every evil like real life rancher that exists he really is he, 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 you, you ever, you know how they have those like traps that like spray out cyanide if like a wolf gets too close to it or whatever? Yeah. And also, you know, maybe like a wandering child or dog or something. Or like they're using, they're using like that Roundup stuff, that pesticide that like gives the farmhands who use it cancer. Yeah, he's Monsanto approved. And- exactly. Can we say that? Are we at risk of liable for saying that or is it proved that it does that? I have no clue. It allegedly gives farmhands cancer. Yeah, uh, I there's just such bad vibes here. I I hate him so much. He's the worst, and I'm glad that he got shot with an arrow. Yeah, I do like. I mean, I do think it's a cool idea for a fight to have like a character who has so many redundant organs that he can just like take the hits and keep going. Yeah. No, I don't have a lot more to say about it than that. I just think it's a cool idea for a fight and also a fun solution, the way that Percy deals with it. It is. It's a, it's very video gamey. Yeah, I can I can see that. Like, not in a bad way, necessarily. It's just like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, this guy's got a lot of hearts. Figure out the puzzle to defeat all his hearts at once. Like, yeah, that's that's a video game. Yeah, you can imagine him having like three glowing icons on his chest and you need to like go around the side of them to make them all line up. Oh, that, that's like a good, like, Breath of the Wild 2 boss. I, so we got one more Labor of Hercules down. Yeah, I, I guess I was wrong. I was insistent that Percy cleaning the stables at the start of uh, Titan's Curse was that labor. Uh-huh. Uh, but no, this, this is it now. There was something you were very right about, though, which was that the one sending him the Iris messages was Bianca. Oh, yeah, I did predict that. Yeah. Never mind, I'm smart. You're very smart. Thank you. Pats your head. I appreciate that. I love the naiad. Oh, the naiad is like the <laughs> best part of these chapters. I, there, there's something so like humorous at first about just like this weird woman who's like standing at a river when Percy gets there because he's he goes and tries to he's like oh I know the solution to this from Hercules I watched the myth uh, I know the myths <laughs> I and the naiad is just over here like I I am not going to let you pour thousands of pounds of horse shit in my river she just comes over and she immediately realizes what's happening and just tells him to fuck off it's so good and like (laughs) the thing about it is that like it's a it's a much needed moment for percy in this because it lets him do the thing where he like rebukes the traditional hero path of not caring about other people yeah it's like the it's like an echo of that moment from the end of titan's curse where he decides to just ditch hercules's way of doing things right and it's I'm I'm always saying it. It's good to see that something isn't just like a one-off epic moment, but it's like absolutely real persistent character development. And also, I think it's just a cool idea that he can turn sea fossils into seawater. Right, because like of course, when people talk about like oh, waterbenders in Avatar are like super powerful or whatever, like mm-hmm. 
I you, you it's it's cool to see the natural like logical extension of things like that. Like yeah, of course they are. They everything has water in it. Like it's exactly. It, it's the same principle of like yeah, of course. Poseidon isn't really a he. He's not really a water god. He's like the ocean god. Hmm. But it's still but kind Percy of Percy um, kind of plays fast and loose with that. Yeah, but it still kind of works out to the same thing because it's like the idea is like well. He's drawing on the power of the ocean from, like, when the ocean covered the land. And I think that's interesting. Yeah, definitely. I do like that the imagery of the stables is really well conveyed in how absolutely horrible it is. Oh, yeah. Like, there's just blood and rotting meat and poo everywhere and these, like, genuinely, like, creepy carnivorous horses. The first horses that Percy tries to talk to... And they're just like, yeah, we'll eat you. We'll, we'll eat you, son of Poseidon. We'll eat Poseidon too. We don't care. Yeah, it's a really, like, it's a neat way to, like, set the tone for how unnerving this whole thing is. Absolutely. Horses have historically been, like, really cool with Percy. And he's finally run into a set that do not give a shit about his authority. Speaking of, like, unnerving things. Okay. Can we talk about Minos's manipulative maze madness machinations <laughs> yes welcome to our, our new segment quadruple m quadruple m this is a segment for probably only this book i guess maybe even only this chapter i mean i feel like minus is gonna show up again and be a dick again uh, probably yeah but like specifically i want to i don't even i just want to say that because of the pun and because minos is very you know gaslight gatekeep greek boss but (laughs) like the thing wow you are on the alliteration today thank you um i i what i actually want to talk about is nico here nico is going through some shit he is someone please give this child a hug a hug maybe like a like a three-course meal please and he keeps buying those and throwing them into weird puddles of pepsi I did not clock that that was Pepsi at first when I was reading, because it was just like, oh, a weird brown liquid pool. Yeah, I, I, I'd assume that it was like, the Pepsi was part of the offering, and then it produced like weird brown liquid that was unrelated, if that makes sense. No, yeah, absolutely. What I love in this chapter, in these chapters, I, I always say this chapter as though we've just read one, but it's, it's these chapters. We have three here. Mm-hmm. It's the four a book that's set in like a big labyrinth where people are getting lost. It's definitely utilizing the full extent of the metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) Like we got characters, we got Nico, we got Luke, we got Annabeth. They're all getting like lost in their complex internal strugglings. And it's for that, like it's a lot stronger, I guess. Like, Nico is there's so much meat to his character right now. Absolutely. I mean the labyrinth thing is like it's it's such a good metaphor. You could not blame someone who was reading this book and immediately decided to lift that and try to use it in something else. I think that'd be plagiarism. <laughs> I think if you did that, I would call the cops on you. I can't believe that I've been strung up like this by my friend who told me to do that. I did. I, it's a it's it's always a good metaphor. It's true. 
specifically with Nico, what we've got here is a lot of things. We've got a portrait of a very angry 11-year-old. We've got a semi-rival like slash like anti-hero character we've going on. We've got somebody who's like super like angry at the main characters but really he's angry at his sister for dying and leaving him behind and like choosing to leave in the first place which we talked a lot about that in the first in the the uh the titan's curse turns out i was right to call that out as being a dick move or yeah yeah (laughs) and but he's also like a perfect portrait of like the manipulated child it's especially in the third chapter it gets so apparent that or maybe the, sec- the second it gets kind of mixed up in my brain like, no the third one is when they um do the summoning right but it's so apparent that nico is like when minos is like trying to get him to turn on them and it's very apparent that he has like so much conflict in there he needs someone to reach out to him right now and he kind of wants to reach back to percy and the gang but also he is like doing everything in his life right now based on his anger at them yeah it's like his emotions are like completely out of control and it's very obvious that minos is just manipulating the hell out of that yeah it's it's excellent i also think one thing that we can't overlook in that scene is like percy seeing bianca again right because like that is rough for him Because, like, the the first thing he does when he sees her is he, like, immediately apologizes. Yeah. Because Bianca was, like, the first person he had to watch die like that. Mm Mm-hmm. And he does feel like it's his fault. He's doing the whole putting the whole world on his shoulders thing. Yeah, also her brother keeps yelling that it was his fault. Right, right. And, like, because of that, we've got the super emotional scene... Where Percy is like, I know your dead sister won't talk to you, but listen, man, she'll talk to me. <laughs> and it's like, damn, that's true. It's exactly true. Yeah. 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 But I, I really enjoy Nico here. I, I, I just want him to, I just want the best for him. Yeah. I mean, it's, it seems like he's maybe get back on the right track or going in that direction by the end of these chapters. Because he's, like, at the very least choosing to cool his heels at the ranch instead of immediately going back into the labyrinth to do more necromancy experiments. Um, we got con- we got confirmation for a lot in these chapters, actually, because we we weren't sure if it was Minos before now, and now it is definitely Minos. Yep, I, I called the Bianca thing, you called that thing. We are prophets. And I don't know if either of us thought of this, but apparently it's also not Percy's soul that Nico is going for. Yeah, no, that that kind of... That's definitely weird. I can see it, because, like, obviously, Nico thinks that Percy is trash. He doesn't... He's worthless, right? But... I mean, yeah, that's that's true. So, my question is just, like, who is Nico going after? <gasps> what if it's, like... Oh. What if he's going after, like, Luke or someone like that? I don't know. I I guess the problem is that we don't know enough about Nico and, like, who is in his life. Right. To, like, really have an idea of who whose soul he wants to harvest from their still-living body to engage in invoking the powers of Satan. 
Right, and who Minos has manipulated him into, like, wanting to do that. Oh, wait, maybe it's Daedalus. Oh, God, you're right. Maybe Minos is making him do that. The the Daedalus stuff in this in these chapters is also top notch. The the what's his what's his nephew called? Perdix. Perdix. That chapter genuinely shocked me. No, yeah, you're totally like there's so much like okay, we were talking about like not only like the weird like the horror of like just like watching Daedalus murder a child. Mm-hmm. But but also like I don't know. There's so much to it. It was like, I was not expecting. I thought the murder, like, they were like, oh, Daedalus feels guilty for murder. I was like, oh, yeah, he, he feels like he murdered Icarus or whatever. No. Yeah. No, he killed someone. Like, and the the way that he is described in that section, like, is such a, like, night and day from how he was in the stuff where Icarus was alive. Like, in that one, he's like, he's a kindly old inventor, grandfather kind of person. And then in the Perdix section, he is, like, this grumbling, angry, bitter old man who is, like, spiteful at this child who is happy and talented because he's happy and talented. And, like, kills him over that. Like, that's horrible. He seems like a genuinely horrible person. Absolutely. It's a portrait of a man who has, like, totally been lost in himself. It's like Nightmare Scenario Nico. Totally. Like, he's lost all of his family, uh, except for, like, people who he feels are going to, like, replace him. Mm-hmm. And he has no sense of purpose, is trapped forever in a labyrinth, and it's it's horrific. But also something interesting, because I think last week we talked about the possibility of, like, what Kronos's body would be like. And... Oh, Yeah. The idea was introduced uh, specifically by Perdix. Like, you could build a bronze body to be immortal forever. And And then Daedalus lifted the plans and kicked him off a cliff. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, one, I'm excited to see that come back. Like, whether... I feel like that could be a pivotal moment. Like, either that will convince Daedalus to, you know, work with Kronos or not to. Mm -hmm. Or... And B, I... I'm really glad that we are getting, like, the Magitek stuff. Absolutely. Super Giga Mecha Kronos real. Super Giga Mecha Kronos so real. I want him to fight Godzilla. <laughs> Just get him to punch one of the, like, um, one of the dragons or something. That's basically the same thing. True, true. Um, I oh, want to talk about this. Uh-huh. Sorry, just to, like, close out this section. I also like that this section basically proves that Minos isn't just a lying scumbag. Yeah. Because Minos says to them, like, Daedalus isn't going to want to help you. He's a piece of shit and he hates half-bloods. And then we see immediately afterwards, oh no, Daedalus really is, like, a horrible person who has a very good reason to dislike Olympians and half-bloods. Absolutely. Because he also, we we learn that he is a half-blood. Mm-hmm. And this firms up my theory that it's definitely he's going to be the child of Athena at the end. I I'm certain of it. Now. Yeah, I think you're definitely right about that. Um, but I I think that is a good example of Minos like manipulating the truth to his advantage. Which you know, I guess I, I you could call that a form of truthfulness. But you know, still a dick about it. Yeah, he's still using it to try and get 
you know, whoever he wants killed. Here's a question. We we talked about a couple different characters who have died here. And we talked about some, like, you know... One thing that Bianca brings up is that as children of Hades, their fatal flaw is holding grudges. Mm-hmm. This is endlessly fascinating to me. Do individual kids, like, give their kids different fatal flaws? That's, yeah, that is an interesting point, actually. Because Percy's fatal flaw is, like, how empathetic he is and how the lengths he'll go to to save his friends. We know that Theseus was a son of Poseidon and he was a piece of shit. Right. So that doesn't seem to be a universal thing. But then there's... But then I'm thinking about, like, Athena and her different kids. Like, there's Annabeth. Her fatal flaw is hubris. Mm -hmm. And we know that, like, it kind of seems that hubris is a problem with Daedalus, too. Yeah, that's true. How, like, is it, like, egg moves in Pokemon? Like, (laughs) but not only that, did Bianca die from holding a grudge? I don't think so. I think that was very much portrayed as like a self-sacrifice, noble death. I thought that was interesting for her to say because like fatal flaw tends to mean like a very literal thing of like this is your flaw- personal flaw that will get that will get you killed. Yeah. But it's interesting that like she was going in to save everyone and like to help Nico out and like get Nico that last card or whatever, you know. Maybe it's not, like, a hard and fast rule. It's just, like, a lot of Hades kids have been dicks who hold grudges. So it's something they need to watch out for more than others. I guess so, yeah. I don't know enough about actual Greek mythology to say whether that's accurate. Well, I mean, there aren't a lot of, like... There aren't probably any, like, famous heroes who are children of Hades. That's not really a thing. Well, Hades is kind of a wife guy, so... He's a wife guy. He's not going to have a lot of kids. Yeah. I just think it's interesting for her to say that when, like, she died pretty recently from, like, Mm -hmm. a a whole different thing. (laughs) But it's it's the thought that counts. She's trying to get Nico some help. I've actually found a dissenting opinion on the quality of these chapters. Oh? uh, Which is that the secondhand copy of the book I have... Uh-huh. I've just realized there's a uh, folded page in the middle of um, chapter 10. Oh? Which I assume means that whoever used to have this folded this, put it down, and then didn't pick it up again. <laughs> That's really funny. What page was it? Page 150. So the the page where Percy kills Garyon. They were like, oh, this is too video gamey. <laughs> <laughs> They were like, this is this is a person who is like, I think it's a bit of a deus ex machina that that uh, that Apollo and, and uh, Artemis helped him. Okay, now to be fair, uh huh, that is literally a deus ex machina. It's not. Is it not? No, a deus ex machina is like, it's like God comes in from nowhere at the end. Of this like it, it, this like we have God set up in the series. <laughs> I suppose that's true. I feel like it it is a Deus Ex Machina in letter, if not in spirit. Maybe. God out of the machine, sure. But I do enjoy that like 
you know, Percy has built up a relationship with certain gods. Yeah, Aphrodite and Apollo are the cool ones. Artemis. Shit, yeah. <laughs> we, I've done that before, do not worry. <laughs> and I think it's good that sometimes he calls on the, like, you know, he calls on, like, hey, any a favor or whatever. Especially since Garyon is, like, harvesting Apollo's holy cows. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that might explain why Apollo was willing to pitch in on that one. Uh-huh. Um, Eurition. I did not like Eurition at first. Yeah, he. I think he, he definitely grew on me as the chapters went. Yeah, that's probably on purpose. Like, like you, he, you're introduced to him, and he's like, "Oh, I'm a down home country Aries boy," and <laughs> you know, and you're like, "Oh, he's an Aries. He's a son of Aries. He's gonna suck," you know, all that stuff. By the end, he's like, you know, I guess I could take over this ranch, make all the living conditions for the animals like good. Actually, it's like stop it, like doing horrific experiments to them it's a nice little turnaround yeah and i do always find it funny when like the villain's henchman just decides that they've had enough and that they're gonna sit this one out true i'm glad that like we're getting a trend of uh aries characters starting off as dicks and then turning out to be kind of cool actually true very it's true. becoming a pattern uh yeah totally he was apparently a uh a son of Ares, and one of the Hesperides, apparently. The proud American. The proud American. That's right. That's right. His description does have the energy where it's like, he definitely has a bumper sticker on his car that says, I love LGBT, but the L, L is like lesbians, B is bacon, G is guns. Oh, yeah. And whatever. Oh, yeah. Lesbians, lesbians, beer, gun, trucks. That's yeah, yeah. He's he's very much that type type of guy. It's <laughs> it's not great. I like I I was reading it and I wrote just like Republican rancher type. He's it's it's. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I know you're saying that we had a lot of things confirmed in these chapters, but there is actually one big mystery introduced that I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, which is who is paying for the group's safe passage through the labyrinth. Hmm. Good question. Uh, my first guess is like Hera or someone. It feels like a bit weird to introduce her as someone who is already trying to help them, and then keep it a mystery that she would be paying for their passage. Yeah, it feels like a bigger mystery than that. Mm-hmm. It feels like like maybe it could be like a big character that we haven't met yet or something. Because I I don't see why like Kronos would. Yeah, no, that would be weird. Maybe Luke? Ooh, could be. Because he does seem increasingly, like, nervous and out of his depth every time Percy sees him. One detail that I loved in this chapter, the final chapter, Luke doesn't carry a sword anymore. Oh, wait, shit, does it? Does he not? No, he wasn't carrying a sword in the last chapter we saw him. Ooh. That's, ex- that's like, a, that's a very good, not like a visual metaphor because it's written down, but, like... Like you see this, it's a visual. It's a visual. You see that, and like the the sword is a symbol of like his oath to Kronos. It's a symbol of evil, Luke. And (laughs) like Kronos actually like specifically was like, look at your sword. Remember the oath you swore earlier in this book. I didn't even notice that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I'm. 
I am super interested where we're going with Luke now. Yeah, that might be foreshadowing for Redemption Arc Luke. He's gotten rid of the sword that is named after a backstabbing piece of shit god. Yeah. Um, Wait, what was it? Backbiter? Uh, How is that? Named named Backbiter, which is um, one of the uh, alternate names for Loki. Okay, right, right. Uh, Loki, now on Disney+. Plus. (laughs) Are they going to sue us for saying that? I don't think so. Oh, okay. Uh, fuck Loki, now on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> We're e- evil. Do not watch Loki on Disney+. Plus. <coughs> Jane coughing to hide the fact that she's been watching Loki on Disney+. Plus. I may or may not have watched a few episodes. <laughs> How was it? Uh, it's, it's, it's fine. It's basically... Have you watched The Umbrella Academy? No. The Umbrella Academy is pretty good, and it's basically that, but worse. I see, I see. Um, you'll hear about Disney taking down, like, just, like, anything that says Loki on it, on, like, Etsy or whatever. Oh, no? They're doing that. Oh. Well, maybe let's just not put it in the title or video description. Sounds good. Video description? It's a fucking podcast. I'm going to start uh, posting these on YouTube eventually, and when I get around to this episode, that remark will make sense. Yes, yes. Uh, we'll, we'll have, like, full color. Like, we've actually been recording our faces the whole time, and, <laughs> like, we, we've been doing a lot of visual humor that we just cut out of the podcast. It'll be on the YouTube release. Yeah, that, this fucking Lego head is about to collapse under the weight of the Blue Snowball and also the 4K camera filming my mug this whole time. It'll be the funniest thing you've ever seen. It'll be even funnier when it falls straight onto my face. <laughs> That'd be very sad. <laughs> you have a very pretty face. Oh, thank you. You do too. No, thanks. Uh, I Let's get metatextual here for a moment. Ooh, okay. Is that what metatextual means? I'm talking about like uh, when a book has a connection to other books. Intertextual, I think. Let's get intertextual here for a second. Do you think Rick Riordan... And this is like a moot point because everybody does and did do you think rick riordan read stephen king i've never once read a stephen king book but almost certainly he has yes i i'm a very big stephen king person not well okay i say that because i've read a lot of stephen king books i would not describe myself like as a very big stephen king fan i just (laughs) i probably would like would have when i was younger but like you know i've read it i've read carrie i've read you know christine fucking on writing the dance macabre all that stuff i've I've read all his books except for the ones that i haven't read there's yeah. there's one like connection point that stuck out to me here and this okay. means almost nothing but it, it almost means something listen i was insistent that a character being named lee was a reference to battlestar galactica last week so go off make whatever connections you want that's definitely the weirdest thing you said last week and not anything else <laughs> So, in The Dark Tower, Stephen King's seminal series, all about... Yeah, semen. I, a little bit. There is a little <laughs> bit of that. Excuse me? Uh, yeah, there's a little bit of it. It's a seven-book series. Come on. I guess. There's some, like, people getting impregnated by demons and birthing spiders and all that stuff. Like every seven-book series that we've discussed on this podcast, it eventually does turn into just a bucket of cold cum. 
That's right. But in the fourth book, The Wizard in Glass, uh, which came out in 1997, there's like a riddle contest heavily featured in it between the the main character group and like a like a suicidal sentient train called Blaine the Mono. Okay, that sounds awesome. It's kind of awesome. And all the characters are like trying to outriddle this like weird like magitech like futuristic fantasy high tech like supercomputer uh, uh-huh. that is like only wants to die and is trying to crash them. Right. But like all he he knows all the riddles. He knows all the answers to all the riddles. And the final thing that like gets him to crack is that one of the characters just like starts to tell jokes. Right. And it's like that's not what a riddle is and it's like, well, actually if you think about it, this is, you know, if you interpret it as a riddle, it'll melt your brain and say it it's very similar to me to like it feels like an inverse of this where like everybody knows the riddles now. Like everybody mm-hmm. knows every Sphinx riddle. Absolutely. But, but it feels like, Oh, like the, the, the very obvious, I feel like even the setup is kind of, kind of like people have heard the idea of like, Oh, you tell jokes to win a riddle contest before. That's, that's probably been done. That's like, Riddle contests, like, that's like in The Hobbit. Like, everybody knows riddle contests. Yeah, you just say, what is in my pocket? Which is absolutely not a riddle. And then you win. This is like a trilogy with The Hobbit, which is not a riddle. The Dark Tower, where you just tell jokes. And this, where riddles have become standardized testing. Mm -hmm. I don't have anything more to say. I just want to talk about (laughs) Stephen King books for a minute. (laughs) I mean, you're successful. You, You diverted the podcast for a good few minutes to talk about that. Yeah, I'm really glad. I <laughs> hopefully don't either I do or don't cut that out. Listeners, let us know if I do or don't, I guess. Did, why would why would they need to let us know? We'll know if you did that. <laughs> I I don't know. I don't know, man. I just I'm just doing my best. You are. You you are doing your very best. Thank you. I uh these have been these were interesting good chapters to talk about. There's probably more we could talk about. Like I like the I guess we can lighten around it now. I like that Percy, like, has to confront the feeling of, like, feeling like a bully, which is, like, a consistent theme with this series. Wait, does he? Oh, yeah, with the naiad. The naiad. Um, I like that... I like Percy and Annabeth's dynamic and, like, continuing to show how they're, like, comfortable with each other, but maybe still can't open up fully. Yeah, and it also emphasizes, like how incredibly fucked up whatever annabeth knows must be right like she still can't bring herself to say what it is it's very good stuff uh quintus he ordered those scorpions from the the dude ranch Mm Mm-hmm. grover is regressing to uh lightning thief grover which is maybe a good thing yeah no i mean i'm not saying that as like a negative i mean that as like he got a big shot of confidence at the end of that book and now circumstances have like completely kicked the shit out of that confidence so yeah it kind of makes sense that he would backslide into some of those bad habits yeah uh Eurition helped make that metal spider trap that uh they found in the water park in book one yeah hmm connections connections stop helping Hephaestus try to film his wife cucking him 
why? I if he paid me, I'd do it. Yeah, but he keeps he's really weird about it. Is the thing like if he was just if he just like asked Aphrodite about it beforehand and it was in the privacy of his own home, that'd be fine. But he keeps trying to catch them on camera so he can show everyone. I I'm sure they got a setup going on or something. I'm sure she's fine with it. <laughs> Uh, Tyson, Tyson's Anna, Tyson's like relationship with Annabeth makes me smile. Yeah, it's gone from creepy mice and men territory and sea of monsters to just being uh, charming now, which is a yeah. big improvement. Thank God for that. Absolutely. Uh, Percy, cooler, smarter, and has to deal with more shit than Hercules. Much is a better hero than Hercules ever was. Absolutely, he is the hero. Hercules is the zero. Oh, Grover and Tyson are starting to trust each other true that's been a big thing kind of throughout this book that we haven't talked about as much but like they they've been they've been a bit cagey around each other but grover let tyson give him a piggyback over some monkey bars it's very nice yeah uh i think that's that's it that's it we just need to wrap up with our famous segment our famous segment uh let's call this what should we call let's call it percy jackson characters are not cis hat is that what we always call it well, you know, I I think we should go a bold new direction. <laughs> Call it per. Let's characters from Percy Jackson are not uh, heterosexual or cisgender. I mean, yeah, that's the new segment name. I see. We're trying to pad uh, for more runtime. Yeah. Uh, what are, what is your nomination for this week? Uh, Eurition uh-huh. doesn't want to work. Just wants to lie in a heap on the ground. Valid. Same. He he's at the dude ranch. He wants to be at the ram ranch. <laughs> he wants some dude ranch. He wants some dude ranch. It's okay too, you know. That's how he got lured in here. That's what he thought it was. What do you think it's like to have three bodies? Um, difficult to shower. Probably. Got to get in between like the holes or whatever. Yeah, and also fitting in the shower. You'd probably just have to get your Russian to hose you down. Maybe that's why he hates him so much. Oh, true. <laughs> uh, my nominee this week will be, you know, let's let's call it uh, Icarus. I think that Icarus, you know, experienced freedom for the first time, and the sun, the sun said, "No, you have to go back into the closet of the sea." God, yeah, no, I see it. Also, also give it to Luke because Luke is slowly becoming good again, which means that it's okay. Luke is becoming good again. He is steadfastly ignoring the advances of the gorgeous demon girl. So True. He we know that at least two girls in the series, Annabeth and Thalia, have been interested in Luke in some way or another. And he has uh not yet. Um Oh oh one last thing before we wrap up uh-huh. is uh Harry Potter Sphinx sucked. Oh my god, I forgot they had a Sphinx. But yeah, you're right, it does suck. This was so cool. Like, this is such a funny scene. Like, this is one of the, like, this, it's, it's not, like, huge, but it's cool. Like, the funny teacher sphinx. Yeah, it's, like, instead of just regurgitating stuff that you heard in university, Joe, it's, like, actually taking mythological ideas and updating or changing them to make them interesting. You know what? I'm changing my nomination to the sphinx. <laughs> uh, to spider more, the sphinx is transgender. You know what? I... You're probably right. I think that'll do it for us today, folks. That'll do it for us. These were these were jam-packed chapters. They were. We probably missed a ton of stuff. Make sure to read the chapters on your own if you'd like to do that. Or if you we don't. We missed a big dog. 
If you want to know oh. about the big dog, you got to read the chapters. Yeah. We've had a lot of fun here. Uh, if you like us, you can support us at patreon.com slash unwisegirls. You get a dollar a month gets you a special role on Discord, marking you as a camp counselor. Three dollars a month, you can get me a special role as a friend of Dionysus and all of our bonus content. Five dollars a month, you get the specialist role of uh, Aphrodite's Chosen and all of our bonus content. And you get a special shout out at the end of episodes. Uh, Jay and thank the people. Uh, this week, we'd like to thank uh, Mercy, Veronica, Friend, and Erica. Jane, please come up with a funny nickname for me, Faye. So, uh, Erica, this week, your name is Flesh-Eating Horse Who Poops a Lot. Good one, good one. I Listen, I always forget about that until the moment I read it and never have any time to think of anything that's actually funny. I, I think that's part of the charm. Thank you. <laughs> find us on twitter at unwise girls guard discord server link in there uh and as we always say at the end of every every episode episode, hey you just try to steal my bit i'm sorry i thought you were pausing so it's okay you can hey okay i'll let you do it and as we always say at the end of every episode see you next week camp half blood see you next week camp half blood Ugh, no, that felt wrong. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>